In the culture war, there are no winners, just podcasters. Only a few are willing to risk their lives in the face of some of the dumbest ideas to have ever captured human civilization. Every week, I, Megan Daum, and Sarah Hader, my partner, humbly accept this mission in order to bring you conversations that are equal parts stunning, brave, and unhinged. Welcome to a special place in hell. Just remember, there's a special place in hell for women who don't help each other. Hi, it's Megan from A Special Place in Hell. As with most transitions, our move over to YouTube has been not without its hiccups. Case in point, we managed to record the most recent episode uh, without the video setting uh, set properly. Some little goblin snuck in and changed the setting while we weren't looking. It was actually Sarah's fault. So we're going to be releasing this week's episode audio only. Uh, We will be back next week with the video. But in the meantime, thanks for bearing with us. And actually, it it was my fault. It wasn't Sarah's fault. Actually, we have no idea whose fault it was. None at all. It's uh, probably one of you out there. So get it together, folks. Thanks. Morning, Sarah. Well, good afternoon. It's morning for me, yeah. and I'm freezing my butt off. Why? It's uh, like in the 50s and raining and cold every morning in Southern California. I turn the Why? heat on when I get Why? up in the morning. That's crazy. Why? I don't know. I've got it's no answers. Here. I know. Nice and humid. It's June 12th. We're recording this, and I am wearing a turtleneck, and I'm freezing. And I was like looking for firewood last night because I wanted to build a fire. <laughs> I mean, not like yeah. I was, I was yeah. going to freeze. Otherwise, it was going to freeze to death. Yeah. If I didn't find firewood. Yeah. Well, well, yeah, at least you look, you look good in turtlenecks. I think is I, that, I like is that the because way of my age. Is that an ageist remark? It is not, but it's interesting how it could be. Why? Why would Nora it be? Af- Nora Ephron was always like going on about her turtlenecks and her. Who? Oh my God, Sarah. <laughs> Nora Ephron. Sounds, a, sounds like a name that her. I've heard. Yeah. She was a, she was a journalist. She was a, she was a, a wonderful columnist and essayist, and then she became a director of uh, mostly pretty cheesy movies like oh. uh, You Have Mail and Sleepless in Seattle. And she, okay. she wrote When Harry Met Sally and uh, other, and, and Heartburn was her classic. Oh, okay. The memoir okay. about her, she was married to Carl Bernstein, you know, the okay. Watergate uh, okay. journalist. Anyway. I've, I've, I've heard of those movies. I have not seen any of those movies. Heartburn is great. That's like one of my guilty pleasure movies. Jack Nicholson and Meryl Streep. Anyway. Um, Yeah. So uh, here we are. Uh, We got a lot of response to our AGP discussion last week. Mm -hmm. People were happy about it. People were happy that we're talking about it. Um, Yeah. And there were some interesting comments. One from a self-identified AGP male Mm -hmm. um, on youtube which is interesting because normally the youtube comments are not interesting um, our youtubers are pretty good for they're YouTubers. pretty good for youtubers i feel like the sub stack comments are generally well, like just higher quality gold standard yeah gold standard and then these guys are occasionally decent but this one was this one was pretty good do you want to do you want to read it megan 
Oh, you we want can me discuss to read it? it a little bit. It's, yeah, it's pretty long. It's well, well, we don't have to read all of it. So this is a guy who um, said he stumbled on our channel because of the AGP title, uh, and so he he said that he is AGP and has been for most of his life. And for those of you who might not have listened to the last episode, that is AGP stands for autogonophilia, which is uh, the sexual attraction to the idea of oneself as female and it's it's kind of a kink some people say it's an orientation people disagree on that front um but uh it is controversially connected to some or even many male to female uh trans people yeah and so this this person says that they are agp and have been for most of their lives um, he says, um, my first premature erotic experience was around six years old, wanting to try on the girl costumes at my preschool and having this massively giddy feeling from the whole experience. I'm in my early thirties. And after years of struggling with these feelings, I finally decided to start transitioning. HRT does, does surprisingly help manage this condition. I will attest. I do, however, just want to make clear for this channel and the commentators that having this orientation sucks when you live in a society that actively shames and humiliates people like myself. Um, while I don't always agree with trans activism, I can at least understand why they want to keep a tight lid on these kinds of conversations. Um, additionally, I might add that there are next to zero therapists and psychologists who are knowledgeable on AGP. Most patients like myself end up having to lecture our therapists and get them up to date on this condition. At this moment in time, there's no reliable cure for AGP other than transitioning or just suffering with the feelings, which in my mind is no way to live. Anyway, so he's just talking yeah. about how he has no support for 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 people like him. and then. Uh, yeah. Do you have things to say about that? Because he also has like some comments on our conversation. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I understand that, that you would want to not have people talk about it because it's so stigmatized. And it's also one of these things that's just very hard to make sense of unless you really think about it deeply, which most people don't. Mm -hmm. So, but I mean, there has to be a middle ground between not talking about it at all ever. and talking about it in a way that is uh, harmful to people. I mean, is that just asking too much of our society in this moment? Well, I, I think we have to talk about it, even if it's harmful to people, unfortunately, because it matters in the conversation of whether or not certain people get to use bathrooms. Like it, it, it matters in that context. It really does. And we, we, we have to be able to talk about it openly, even if that means it, it hurts some people. And I, I wish it wasn't this way. You know, I wish we could have an open conversation about it. I just, I feel like we have to choose between which group to victimize a little bit. Mm. And while I feel like AGP is a, if you just have, if you're just suffering with this condition, it can be, you know, quite literally a suffering, you know, quite literally something you would you want to get rid of if you could, but you can't. Having said that, there are, you know, young women and girls who are in danger from predators if we don't have this conversation more yeah. honestly. So I think I, I mean, we, we have to, right? We, it, it, yeah. It seems to me that if you can talk about it and acknowledge it and understand it, then you can provide uh, options for people who do have it so that mm -hmm. they can have their experiences mm -hmm. kind of in contained spaces. Like, right. right. I don't see anything to be lost from talking about it, but right. maybe that's naive because most of the world now is unable to metabolize anything more complex than like, this is good, this is bad, right. wrong side of history, right side of history, end of story. Right. So, so it, it was interesting that he says that they're next to zero therapists or psychologists that are knowledgeable about it, which, you know, I don't want to get back on my uh, campaign against 
psychology, but it they should they should have some insight about this. They should know that these feelings exist and these are the motivations of some people without patients having to tell the psychologist what's going on. Um, I know. They're educated by the, by the culture way too much, um, primarily educated by the culture, unfortunately, and the culture will not acknowledge this. You mean the therapists are educated by the culture? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that uh, obviously like you're going to, you know, psychiatrists and psychoanalysts are going to understand AGP, I would have to think. I mean, it is. Will there? It is psychological researchers that talk, wrote about it and coined it. I mean, Ray Blanchard. uh, But they're trying. They're so marginalized. It's like amazing that, you know, these people have written books and they're very well known in the field. And that, that you would have huge swaths of therapists who are not even aware of the research done yeah. by major figures in their field, for better or for worse. It's mm-hmm. it's kind of like being a, I don't know, I guess it's like being a, calling yourself, um, I don't even know if this would be analogous. It's not really like calling yourself a writer, but you haven't read any books or something, or you haven't read like the standard literary canon. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, that's what's happening now. You can get an English degree without reading a single dead white male yeah quite possibly yeah i mean it reminds me a little bit of the conversation now they're really gonna hate this but just stick with us it reminds me of the stuff around pedophilia like there is a there's a school of thought that pedophilia is a sexual orientation and that you can be um attracted to minors without ever actually acting on it uh while with you know all the while knowing that you should never act on it, but like, if you can talk about it, maybe you can create options. Like maybe there's an AI world for people who have these attractions. Like, Mm -hmm. is it, I don't know. I mean, it introduces all kinds of ethical questions. Like, is it okay to have like, you know, computer generated young people as sexual objects that are available online? Is is AI generated porn different from actual porn? Like yeah. all these questions are, are floating around and the, the AGP thing is mild compared to the uh, pedophilia thing. So right. just look, let's just look at it that way. Right. Right. Yeah. And I think that I, I feel like it's, it should be possible to have to, to both say that I feel sorry for somebody. Like I understand how pedophilia could potentially be just like similar to an orientation. And that's something you just can't help. You just always feel and feel a sense of you know sympathy for people who are going through this and at the same time draw very hard lines in the sand um regardless you know um it feels mean i think you know when you when you sympathize with somebody you sympathize with you know a pedophile or a child or whoever people have a hard time not allowing that sympathy to move them very far and i think we have to be able to kind of do both like we have to be able to kind of have sympathy for people who are drawn to these sexualities that we consider right rightfully consider deviant and at the same time not flinch when we say you know here's a red line and we're sorry that we're sorry it's it's not fair to you it's not fair that you were born this way it's not fair that this you know that this is how your sexuality developed but we are going to prioritize the well-being of this other you know class of people they're gonna say that's what you used to say about gay people i mean that just because it was an argument applied you know wrongly in one way doesn't mean that it's not a good argument or there's not something for it. I think you do have to ultimately choose between, you know, the interests of different groups from time to time and make some tough decisions. 
and, you know, not apologize too much for it too, you know? Um, anyway, so this, this person had some uh, comments about our chat. And one was that he, he, th- he thinks that he doesn't believe tor- porn turns people AGP, that they kind of seek it online from his experience. And there's sort of an innate interest already. Um, and he b- gives his experience. He's never really watched porn and he doesn't have interest in it, like zero interest, according to him, never watched it. Um, and yet somehow I turned out this way. It has to be a combination of genetics and cultural context that arises these feelings. I mean, I think it can be, it, why not both? Why not everything? You know, like I, I right. think it's, it's entirely possible that I actually think it's likely that porn is increasing these feelings in the people that might be um, likely to have them anyway. I think it might be creating these feelings in people who are easily influenced. Um, I think it, you know, uh, and it doesn't have an effect on, on, on many others. There was a really interesting book I read. I remember a long, long time ago. So I cannot, I'm not even sure if this was the title, but it was called something like men in love. And it was about like, it was a woman who was, she, she interviewed a bunch of men and she talked about, uh, talked to them about their fetishes, like their kinks or whatever. And their personal histories and when they first remember having these feelings. um, And it was some men would talk about getting aroused at, you know, pee or whatever, like what is it called? Um, Water sports. What is it called? I don't know, but uh, (laughs) right. Isn't there like a porn term? What's the porn term? Yeah. I haven't got water sports. I have not heard that term since the late eighties. I think think that's what it is. Is that what it is? Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. I don't know. Okay. There, There was a man who, who said that that's, he got aroused by that. And then he traced back his fur, the first time he even felt traced that back to the first time he ever felt arousal at all. And it was like, he was, like be kind of like accidentally ran across some some girls or like teenagers or something who were just like peeing on the side of the road or whatever and he got aroused he got aroused <laughs> by girls it do. well yes. i don't i don't know what girls exactly was happening it was something like yeah. that like he saw something like yeah. that and it was it was just an accident you know he was just he just he wasn't looking for it it just happened and he got aroused and then from that point forward he was always just th- that was what was working for him. And I think there's something about, you know, that first, that first encounter with like of the first erotic experience and how much it might, you know, imprint on us in the sense that oh, you know, yeah, that's how sure. the, yeah, that's how the brain is now. Now there's a new connection in the brain. Mm-hmm. And the more you think about that again and again, the more you crystallize it, that connection between orgasm and that one thing yeah. in your mind. Um, so I wonder if there's like, you know, LSD therapy or something, you know, something that would help your brain, th- those, those connections sort right. of become a little bit more flexible. And maybe there's something we can do about that. Um, anyway, so I, mean, uh, I think they tried that with gay people, but, but gay people are different because that's not gay, gay, gayness is not a kink. It's not, it doesn't imprint itself it's at not, some it point. It's seen as such. No, it was it seen is as such, but it wasn't, but right? Like, no, but I, I'm sure, I mean, I'm not an expert on this, but I'm sure that there was talk back in the 50s sure, and 60s sure, sure. of like, how to cure know, psychedelic sure. therapy to cure gayness and all of that. I just wish that like an AGP person who was just like functioning in the world in a relatively healthy way would step up and talk about this. Caitlyn Jenner would be a good example. I don't know if she's ever 
I guess she has not ever publicly acknowledged that she has AGP, but it's pretty clear that that's what that is. But she doesn't lead with it. Mm -hmm. I feel like the gay thing really makes this whole conversation very difficult because time and time again, we as a culture look back on what we did to gays, you know, and how um, unfair and unjust we were to gays. And we use that as a template of what not to do ever, ever. Yeah. Um, and I think we we're learning the l- wrong lessons and we're not understanding what we did wrong there very well. And it's allowing us to make this huge mistake when it comes to gender issues. Um, and I, uh, yeah, I mean, this is just like one instance in which I can kind of see like, you, yeah, but we did it to gay. So yeah. that's bad now, you know, but that's not, you know, like <laughs> maybe it was bad that we did it to gays because it didn't apply because it wasn't a kink. It wasn't a perversion. It was an orientation. Um, I might not say that we can do this to pedophiles either because pedophilia might be an orientation. It might be something that, uh, you know, that you really can't do anything about. And I think that matters in as far as how we should talk about this and how, uh, yeah. you know, how, sh- how we should even conceive of it. Okay. So the second thing he said that he, he doesn't think that AGPs are walking around in public getting aroused 24 seven. Like, that's not what's happening. So when we think that that's, you know, okay. I don't, I don't think that, I think it would be pretty hard yeah. to be aroused 24 seven. It would uh, be pretty hard, but I also don't know how I just, I don't know when you are or aren't. So I can't, you know, it, it's a, <laughs> if it's a part and parcel of something that makes you aroused and then like, it's like saying, okay, I can wear a, you know, puppy leather, you know, what is that fetishist thing that you keep? I keep seeing it now in pictures from Pride where men are in like puppy. Oh, like a spike collar? Like yeah, a, they're in a like collar. A, they leash? have like ears. They have, yeah, they're, they, there's a leash <laughs> attached and they're like See, I can't barking believe- or whatever. <laughs> okay, so maybe you're wearing that 100% of the time and you're not aroused 100% of the time. But if I see you wearing that, I might think that, well, there is a very strong possibility that they're aroused. And I just, I don't like the message that that's giving. So maybe I, you just don't wear it. I just feel like this is, I don't know. It's almost like protesting too much. It's like, really? You, you think this is, are, are, this is really turning you on in such a big way? Or are you trying to make a point that the, the dog be thing? accepting the dog thing? Like should, we should be accepting of all, uh, of all kinks. It's, I don't know. Hey, look, I mean, you and I are both big skulls when it comes to this oh, stuff. Oh, yeah. But they can't uh, tell us no about that because, I mean, we can do, we, all we have to do is define our, our, our scoldness, um, yeah. our, our, our prudishness as, an, as a kink. And then they can't change oh, us. Oh, you're right. Uh, my, uh, yeah. My, my prudishness is a protected category. Yes. My, my kink is kink shaming, as yeah. they say. <laughs> Uh, so let's see. Uh, last thing he says, most AGPs I know, and I know a lot of them are actually extremely sweet, down to earth, sensitive people who seriously pose no threat to women. In fact, some of us, I'm pretty sure, are the ones scared of women. Yeah. It's frustrating reading some of those things women write about us online as it seem to point to only extreme examples while ignoring the majority of us who I see as fairly normal and often very kind people. The AGPs that I know personally, I would also put in a nice person, sensitive person category versus creep Mm -hmm. which is how it how it does come across online and i feel i feel bad about that you know i feel bad that there is this kind of predator archetype that's going around becoming cemented online but yeah and it's again it's this sort of lack of nuance and i i get wary sort of 
I, I worry about this kind of super turfy thing that is coming from a place of women's victimization. Right. Um, I know it's not all like that, but yeah, I just wish that there was a way of talking about this stuff a little more dispassionately. The thing is people have been victimized. I mean, that's why the, yeah. the pedophilia thing is yeah. incredibly difficult to talk about because a lot of people have had very negative experiences. There's so much um, childhood sex abuse yeah, uh, and people are dealing with it. And so it's almost impossible for people to think rationally about it. Right. Um, and I think that we can think in terms of, if we can learn to think in terms of proportions, that might just be helpful. I even when I talk about the bathroom issue uh, on you know on Twitter, on social media, whatever, I'll, I'll I'll be talking about how well it just it makes sense that we have segregated bathrooms, and I will have men challenge me on that and say why you know I don't pose a threat to women, and I don't think majority of men that I know pose a threat to women, and I agree with them. That's probably true. That's probably true, but that's not why we have it. You know, we, we don't have it because every man is a serious danger to every woman. Society would not function well if that was indeed the case. It was that there are purpor- the, the proportions of people who are uh, predators and who are also capable because of their strength, because of their, you know, mm-hmm. uh, whatever, uh, uh, the testosterone fueling their, you know, uh, fueling their drives because of all, because of this, they're more able to act on it. And we need to protect the more vulnerable sex from the sex that's more capable and willing to inflict a certain kind of violence. And it doesn't mean every man is doing this. It doesn't mean that at all, but it is still good policy (laughs) and it still makes sense. And we shouldn't think that it's demonizing men because that's not what's happening. Uh, it's just acknowledging that men and women are different and have different rates of different kinds of behavior. I just, I, there should just be more gender neutral bathrooms. It just feels, it just seems pretty simple. What do you mean? Like single stall? I guess so. Yeah. I mean that you're seeing that more and more. Yeah, sure. So there, it's just hard to do in some large context. Like in, yeah, the, in, yeah. in, the, in the airport, it's very, very tough to do something I like know, that. but how many, okay. But like how many people would be using it. Like how many uh, transgender people are actually walking around in an airport that they're- Oh, you mean like in addition to the sex segregated ones? Yeah, there would be a huge line outside Mm -hmm. the gender neutral bathroom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. I think in addition to, sure. Like I think that's that's what we're going to see. I just, I think that's what society is kind of inching toward. Like, let's just add, this is an add on and as opposed to, uh, we're going to let people in to what already existed. Just yes. Yeah, I don't know if, I don't know if they're going to accept that. Well, I don't think I'm if the sorry. trans activists are going then to accept I, that, they're then, not going to accept that at all. Because that, that is, that is, that's not even, a, that's not better than what we have now. Their problem is with the fact that bathrooms are based on sex. And when you add a gender, like sex neutral bathroom, you're still basing bathroom access on sex. Okay. You're well, still I'm doing sorry. that. Like, I say the more bathrooms, the better. I don't even I agree, know. I agree. Gonna, but the, I mean, they're not going to, they're never going to uh, relent because their problem is not with, like, it's not the case that they just want a safe place to pee, which is what they keep saying. Because if that was the case, they would be advocating for this very common sense solution that you just put out, which is mm-hmm. give us a gender neutral bathroom. Mm-hmm. Like in one, in every large, in every public facility that's yeah. more than blah, 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 like give us 
like larger than this much square feet or whatever, give us one gender neutral bathroom. If safety was their priority, then that would be uh, a, you know, something that they would, they would push towards or just uh, bathrooms with single stalls or stalls that are like, you know, floor to ceiling, you know, they have those in, in, in different places. I've seen them in, in, different parts of the world that I've traveled in and, and, it, and they were fine and they worked well. That's not, that's not going to validate their gender identity, however. So that is why the, those solutions, although they might make them safer, uh, they obviously don't care very much about safety because they're never going to, they're never yeah. going to settle for that. God, so. I, I remember one time I was traveling in China and we went up to this really remote village, like high up in the mountains. I think it was, pretty much one of the most sort of extreme developing world kind of like, you know, just very real, real poverty, like very little, just not modern. Okay. Like, and they are in the, in the village, everybody had like a, not everybody, but in the individual houses, they would have like a chamber pot maybe. But then in the village, there were two different bathroom areas that were literally just like a hole in the ground Mm -hmm. with some kind of like, you know, something around it, that like a some kind of wall that you could go behind. But it was literally just a hole in the, in the ground outside. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. there was a men's side and a women's side. So side. like the men's hole in the ground. Yeah, there was a okay. men's hole in the ground. And then like, you know, several hundred feet away, there was the w- women's hole in the ground. And uh, I went to the women's one and it was like, you know, completely disgusting, just trash everywhere and open sewage and all of that. And I thought, well, this is totally gross. I can't imagine how disgusting the men's side is. So, yeah. Yeah. Maybe we just need to go back to holes in the ground. Yeah. That would um, be, you know, careful what you wish for. Yeah. I didn't uh, encounter like a sit down toilet, like until I was, until we came to America. We didn't have, we not, we did not have just simple holes in the ground, but you have those like squatting toilets. I know. Yeah. That's but, really weird. And some of them flush, but they don't. So they're like hyge- normally hygienic and they're actually more hygienic than sit down toilets. They the squatting are. toilets. Yes. Because so long as your aim is decent, which it, <laughs> it should be because they're usually organized in a way where like kind of just, it, that's where it goes. Uh, you never, you never sit. Your, your butt doesn't. I mean, it you know, kind of does make more sense. It does. Oh, oh! It, it not only does it make more sense. It is like the more. It is a better way to go. Number two, for sure. There's like um, I don't know. Somebody on my Facebook back when I had one was singing praises of this thing, which is kind of like a stool you put around your toilet, and then you use that to squat on. So oh, you're squatting. squatting potty. Oh is yeah, it the squatting yeah, yeah. potty. Yeah. yeah, they uh, they sponsor podcasts. So oh, uh, if we play well, our cards right. Oh my gosh, why are we, we're plugging them for free. They should, I know, they should we, know, we need well, to get them as a sponsor. So they'll send us like a sample. So they'll, they'll ship, so, so ship they'll both. Well, evidently us. it's very like, so this person who was talking about it was singing praises about how he was like constipated or something or he wasn't regular. And then he got a squatty <laughs> potty and all of his, like his, his problems were just, they were over. All his problems went they away. Were, his, they went his, away. His AGP went away. Everything, Everything. went away. Everything went away. He was a pedophile away. and an autogonophile and the squatty right. potty just cured him of everything. Yeah. So we need to, I don't know. I'm going to invest in one. I'm going to buy one. I, I'm going to buy one and then I'm going to review one for this podcast. Okay. Not on the YouTube, please. Not on. Okay. That's well, more of an um, audio. Audio thing. Okay. Yeah. 
Sounds good. Um, all right. Well, yeah, nice comments. I think that as far as YouTube goes, our like we said, our, our commenters are pretty high end. So I would I would hope that they keep it up. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, there was, um, I do want to say there was in response to the AGP person who commented and thank you. Thank you to, uh, to them because I thought this was really, this was good. Um, and it's good also like from a representation perspective, like part of the reason that when you think AGP, you think creepy man who, you know, is violating women's spaces is because those are the people that we see. And quote unquote, normal AGPs are not talking about it. You know, they're yeah. not coming out of the woodworks. They're not talking about their experiences and how they feel about all of it. And often they have much more reasonable yeah. approach to something like this. And they're willing to say, okay, here are some, you know, I understand why society has this line, this line drawn and I'm going to respect that. But you don't hear from these guys, so speak up. Uh, yeah. But a, a dominatrix responded to to, to this AGP uh, man and said that uh, to her, she, she comes across AGP often um, manifest itself in several ways, either light cross-dressing interest combined with other fetishes um, or those who happily live with their male identity in daily life, but like to dress up as a second secret erotic female identity, wherein they are sexual. It turns them on very intensely. And I, and then I have one client who actually transitioned is super happy and fulfilled as a woman. Uh, taking hormones looks and feels like things have clicked into place. Very sensitive person who would never want to cause harm to others. Well, um, I think that person should speak up and should talk about a reasonable limitation to things like this. But if they're speaking up, that's antithetical to the very personality that made them. Well, uh, but then, but then they're not, then they can say (laughs) as much as they want that they don't want to cause harm, but they are causing harm because if they are allowing for the door to be opened and for, you know, women and children to, be exposed to a higher, you know, a higher rate of danger in private spaces, then you are causing harm. It doesn't matter what your intentions are. So, I know this is always the problem is that the smart people are smart enough to know to keep their mouths shut. Right. So it's only the stupid people running around. Right. Anyway. All right. Is there anything on that? I think we need to to move on to uh to something you got yourself in big trouble about uh, on Twitter. Well, you can't start it this way because it's like every other day I'm getting... I don't know. For somebody who's so busy, you certainly spend a lot of time tweeting. This is a really good way to ignore your child when you're with them. Oh, I see. (laughs) Yeah, because I can't be on my laptop uh, because, you know, it's too distracting you know, yeah, you can't, you can't, you can't be on your laptop. Oh, you're you can't actually tweeting work, on, your, work. on your phone. See, yeah, the days phone. that I tweet the most are the days that I'm actually trying to write something. That's mm-hmm. how, when you see me tweeting a lot during the day, you're on your that's computer. when you know that I'm actually writing. Oh, I'm, I almost never use the desktop. I'm almost always on my phone when I'm oh, tweeting. God. I never use my phone. Yeah. So I'm, I'm only on my phone. That's, I, I don't know why I don't like the desktop app. I just, there are other things to do on the computer. So I'd rather do that. Um, and then I can actually work on the computer, but on my phone, if I'm in a situation where I'm just like, at, I'm at the park, you know, and I have like five seconds of downtime, I'll go and check Twitter. See, I don't even have social media on my phone. That's smart. That's, I know. Oh, but I, I, how would I pass the time? I mean, I have to, I have to have I, something. Well, speaking of squatty potty, I mean, I, the, the day that I found my, I'm sorry, this is TMI, but the day that I found myself like in a public restroom in a restaurant or something sitting there and looking at Twitter and actually tweeting something, I was like, Megan, no, stop it. Like, 
you're not going to live this way. And so I deleted it. How do you, I mean, this is how I, so I tweet when I'm in, when I'm either I'm, I'm, I'm babysitting. Isn't that odd to call it? Thank you. Are you babysitting? You really need extra money. When I'm, baby, like that, when I'm like babysitting my own children, stuff? when oh. I'm with my own children and they're ignoring me or they don't want anything, they're coloring, whatever. And I'm just there and I can't be, I can't be working. I have to have one eye on them and then one eye on some, and I can, can have one eye on something else. Twitter is good from that perspective because it doesn't require a lot of brain power. You can just bleh, throw something out. Writing, <laughs> well, writing requires brain power. Brain power. Okay. So no, you, it doesn't. It doesn't. Or I'm but, waiting in line or I'm, oh you know, God. I'm at the checkout, whatever. Then I'm tweeting. I'm on my squatty potty. Then I'm tweeting. You, you don't like sit there and think like, is this really a good idea? You don't like see, you does this have any typos? You're thinking, my... No, I just shoot it out. You just really? like, let it go. And oh, then... and I have this thing where I like to use every single character if possible. Okay. I like to have zero at the end of the character count. So I know I have like maximized the tweet. Anyway. You said something about not having an internal monologue, and this was fascinating, and it generated a lot of discussion. So can you talk about what was the origin of this thought and what it actually means? Oh, um, let's see. What I don't know what started it. It was a couple of weeks ago now. I don't know why I originally... Well, it, it, was, it was a tweet I saw of this woman who is just like making this like face with the camera. And she's just like, I, my husband just told me that he has a voice in his head that narrates all of his thoughts. And, you know, in her face, she's just like, this is the craziest, you know, the craziest thing I've ever heard. And I think I retweeted that. And I said something like, I, I have a hard time believing that people narrate their thoughts. It's like, it's so, I don't even know how, I don't even know. It just sounds crazy to me. Sounds like, sounds like something people make up or exaggerate but it's evidently real. So a lot of people responded to me and were like, I can't believe you don't have an inner monologue. What do you mean you don't have an inner monologue? A bunch of people said, no, you do have an inner monologue. You just don't know you have an inner monologue. You're just yeah. not connected to your inner monologue. Other people were saying that you must be an idiot because <laughs> then it means you have no thoughts. If you have no inner monologue, yeah, you, you have, have no thoughts. No thoughts. Yeah, if you're not obvious. verbalizing your thoughts, you're not, ha- you're not having them which I thought was really well, interesting. Very verbalist. Well, that was, it was a really interesting assumption. And it's actually an assumption that's been made in the, like for a long, long time in the whole study of how we understand thought, like what it is, uh, you know, conceptually, there has been a huge, uh, you know, kind of a school that presumes that language is very much a part of thought. You know, they're one and the same. I think Noam Chomsky uh was uh, he 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 was a big driver of of this school of thought um and it's become a, an assumption um in a lot of spaces steven pinker pushed back against it in uh his book the language instinct um and i found that to be really interesting and i'm glad that someone pushes back against yeah, it because steven it's Pinker's not the case that side. i am thinking nothing that's not the case i'm just not verbalizing my thoughts but Okay. So, but like when you wake up in the morning and it's like, you have to do X, Y, and Z, h- how does it like map onto your mind? Is it like just concepts? Yeah. I just, I just know it. I just know what I have to do. I'm not hearing the word in my head. I do hear, I can uh, hear a voice in my head when I'm b- arguing. And I can make, but it's deliberate. It's deliberately done. It's like, 
let's say we had a conversation and you know, you made me look stupid or something. And then maybe 30 minutes later, I'm thinking about ways I could have the, how I could have like alternate, you know, whatever you're debating in your head kind of thing that I can do, but it's deliberate. It's not happening on its own. It's something I'm doing. It's also not something I can do while I'm doing other cognitive tasks. So I can hear that voice and that's it. It, it feels to me as a practice in articulation. And that's the only time I hear a voice. Outside of that context, I'm not like, hmm, I woke up today. What do I have to do? I have this to do and this to do. And no, what about that? No, I'm not thinking, nothing, nothing like that is happening in my head. I'm not hearing anything like that. What are you hearing? When you wake up in the morning, what's, you hearing something? I don't, I think it's intermittent. I, I, uh, it's like, I wake up in the morning and I do a lot of like, okay, what do I have to do now? The first and thing you I hear need this. to do is this. Like I find myself saying, okay. Uh, like whenever I'm driving, it's funny. Whenever I, if I'm out and I get home, I pull into the driveway. I almost every single time, like I turn off the engine and I'm like, okay. And it's, I'm aware of it. And I'm like, that's stupid. And I, lately I'm like, why do I do that? Like, how have I gotten into this weird habit? Uh, so is it, are you talking or is a voice talking? That well, is in, that, in the okay thoughts? thing, it's, I am talking for some reason. To you. I don't know why that or is. To yourself. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I don't talk to myself. I definitely know people though, who go around and kind of mutter to themselves or whisper to themselves. Yeah. And I feel like I probably, as a, if I, when I'm really old, I will probably be one of those people. Uh, but it's definitely, I definitely have like a narrative in my head, like, uh, okay, I'm going to go here now. Or, um, I think I, I, or, you know, I'll just be sort of unspooling a kind of string of sentences. Okay. So are you thinking, but are you thinking right now, including right now, while you're no. having a conversation with me, are you also have, are you also hearing things in your head? Uh, no, but I'm, I'm feeling a, a kind of, um, there's like a slight thumbprint of awareness, like even just something simple, like sit still because the camera's on or what are we going to talk about next? How much time has gone by? And that's a, ver- that- and that's a, and that is la- in language. It's not just a feeling you're having. It is the words sit still. Yeah. Sometimes. Yes. Mm. Yes. I mean, it's, but I wonder how much, well, so, but I don't even think it necessarily has to do with being a a writer because a lot of people were saying that they have this. So, yeah. 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 I don't think it's Um, correlated to anything like that. But you don't, uh, okay. So you don't like, do you replay conversations after you've had them? I know. I mean, what you just described is this kind of like, oh, I wish I had said this. This is the L'Esprit d'Escalier concept, right? Like, oh, the the perfect retort would have been this. Right. And if only I could have said it. The way that I verbalize things in my head if i verbalize them it is a practice in articulation it's something i want to say i have a big talk coming up maybe i in my head i sort of practice what i would say and how i would articulate a response to a reader critique that i know is going to come or a listener critique or whatever audience critique that i know is going to come how would i verbalize it so i kind of practice this but it's a it's a very deliberate thing it does, it's not just coming you know what i mean it's not just out of nowhere, this is how my, this is how I understand my own thoughts. I think maybe you're in the middle though, because there were some people who were saying that their entire lives are being narrated Uh all the time. Like everything they do, they, if they want want to have a drink, they hear a sentence in their head and it's language. It's not a thought. It's not a feeling. It's not, it's not, they're not feeling this way. They hear a sentence. Oh, I'm thirsty. I should get, you know, grab this 
grab this cup and drink oh, okay like mm, yeah this water is too warm like like they're having a whole <laughs> they're they're having and it's verbal it's like it's words it's sentences it's language which is very interesting because i don't think like that at all i don't have any my lang my my thoughts are never being narrated never being turned into language but you do write. So how, what is it like when you're writing? Because that's what turning your thoughts into language is exactly where writing is. Yeah, that's what that's what I'm doing when I'm writing. I think what people people already sort of do in their heads before they even get to the point of saying something out loud, I don't do until I know that I have to get it out loud. Do you imagine what a conversation's going to go like before you have it? Sure, but I think that's I think that's different. I think that's just that's just practice. It doesn't feel to me that that's the same thing as an inner monologue as most people experience it. Yeah. What I'm curious about isn't just the fact that you people can verbalize things in their heads. I think everybody can do that. And from, so I, I have, I tweeted about it a bunch because I was like obsessed about it and it just drove me crazy. And this was at a time where I, I actually had um, a family member who was very sick. And so there was a lot of like hospital time kind of, you know, like <laughs> time where I had nothing better to do than to obsess about this on Twitter. So. Obsessed about your inner monologue? Your um, loved one is, is on, is that well, you have, door you have access and you're obsessing to... about your inner monologue? No, if you're, if you're, you know, waiting somewhere and you're just waiting yeah, and know. there's literally yeah. nothing better to do um, and you can't do anything else or go anywhere, that's what you're doing. Um, but it was just, it made me think about how much of what we perceive of as personality differences might actually just be differences like in how we perceive reality or even the the connection that we have between language and thought for some people it's like a very i think it's a very immersed like you know uh, interconnected interwoven relationship where their language is thought they're mm -hmm. always hearing their thoughts articulated because that's what their thoughts are Right. Um, and then for some people, their thoughts are a little bit different. So I looked at looked it up. I've been reading a lot about it and I'm going to write it out and, and put it on on my sub stack, not in a beautiful way, just because there's too much, but in a maybe just like an outline of what I found. But there is and I there is a, a such a thing called unsymbolized thinking or what people have articulated as calling as being unsymbolized thought. The way that I experience writing, I think one of the reasons I really find writing extremely difficult is because for me, it's not uh, just a pure transmission. Like here's my thought and I'm going to, and I'm just literally just putting it into uh, my computer or on this paper. Uh, but for me, it is like a translation. It is, I have a thought, it is not in any kind of language. And now I have to put it into language. And that process is frustrating and difficult. It is deliberately done. I am often frustrated with where my language takes me because it is not my thought. And then I don't, and I don't have the vocabulary. I don't have the, you know, means to, to articulate it in any other way because I'm limited by our own language. Uh, so I find writing frustrating and difficult and painful I think that's why it probably takes me a long time. Well, this is where anything. story comes in though, because if in order to sort of get the thought, get the abstraction of the thought to materialize into something that you can put down on the page, like a very useful tool is to like tell an anecdote or have some kind of like personal narrative or a narrative about a person that is an example of what you mean. And then you go into the more abstract kind of rumination about it. I mean, I'm thinking as you're talking, like I'm thinking about this concept of 
diagenic versus non-diagenic sound. And this has to do, yeah, it comes diagetic, excuse me, diagetic versus non-diagetic sound. So this comes from film mostly. So in, in cinema, diagetic sound in a movie, say, is the sound that is organic to the scene that the characters can hear. So like another person talking on the screen, that's diagenic. If there's like, you know, if a car honks in the background of a scene, that's diagetic. Non-diagetic would be a voiceover, something Mm -hmm. that the characters are not hearing, but that the audience hears. Mm -hmm. And I always loved voiceover in film. Um, I was really, I, I, a, a lot of my favorite films have very prominent voiceovers and often really? voice. Yes. Yes. And often, yeah. Like, I mean, uh, there's a film, well, like I love this director, Terrence Malick, who his very early films like Badlands and Days of Heaven were very, very heavy voiceover, but in a way that was, that was sort of quirky. And it was like, as if the voiceover was in a different register than what you were seeing on the screen. And that was part of the, the the art of the thing right so i think that i just got like i was i just i was so into films when i was like a teenager and young adult and i think i just got like in my ear this sense of a narration but also just from reading because that's what a novel is you're yeah. it's a narration it's an overlay of narration onto your experience and i actually think that for me it was it was always a way as you would say a cope I love that. Um, but it's just sort of a way of uh, having your life be maybe more interesting or like having a negative experience be kind of manageable because you can shift mm. it into something that feels like a narrative. Mm. Um, but it's very interesting that we're talking about this now because I don't do it as much as I used to. Interesting. And I wonder if it's because I just don't go to movies as much as I used to. Unfortunately, I don't read novels as much as I used to. I mean, I'm, I'm having these conversations with like a lot of people lately, um, just about like the way that we consume culture Yeah, and story seems to be lost a lot, which is weird because we have all these streaming shows yeah. that people obsess about it that are nothing but story. I also, I mean, well, it might be that there's, there are more people who don't respond that well to stories or, or don't like, don't feel, so I don't read a lot of novels yeah, or fiction in general, because part of it is that evidently, and this is, these two things are connected. People who have, who don't hear an inner monologue are also more likely to have something called aphantasia. Which you have you ever heard of this? Yeah. What, remind right. me what that is. It is when you have trouble mentally visualizing things um and people who have aphantasia are actually they just can't visualize at all so when you say think of an apple oh they cannot like they close their eyes and it's just black they can't think of any nothing comes up they sort of the concept of apple emerges in their mind you know but it it it, you know the list of attributes of an apple emerges in their mind they can sort of have this the the feeling of apple or is there but the actual visual apple is not there. And evidently, so there's people who have zero visual imagery and then there's people who have like, th- th- there's, um, you know, it's a, there's a spectrum. People who can see movies in their heads are at the other end of the spectrum. Oh. And those people, the people who, who are very, very good visualizer, who, who can close their eyes and see a full movie, like they can, they can imagine a scenario and it is as vivid as a movie 
and as detailed as a movie. Uh, they can uh, imagine smells as well. So it's actually better than a movie in, <laughs> to some degree. And those people, are, yeah. those people are also heavy internal monologuers. Yeah. Uh, and the reverse is true for the other end. So I also have trouble with mental images. Um, and Razib point, like, asked me this question on Twitter when this was going on. He was Razib like, so how Khan, do you, Razib Khan, who was a, a guest, guest on our show, guest on our podcast, guest on the pod. A uh, friend of the pod, geneticist, uh, extremely successful substacker. He he was like, so how do you have memories? Like, what are your memories? And I don't have brilliantly colorful memories, like uh, episodic memories, it, which is to say like memories of myself. Um, I, mem- I, I remember facts about the world as well as I think anyone. You know, what was, can I, can I remember that all of my teachers' faces no oh elementary school teachers faces not even maybe one <laughs> i can't remember their faces how, but, how much can you remember from your childhood like how, how what do your memories look like my memories look like sort of moments mm-hmm. where i i often they are moments when i was aware that i was imagining my life as if it was in a movie well like even as a young kid, like I would, I saw, I, I, I wanted my life to be like something that you would see on a television show or in a movie. And sometimes I would like, whatever I was doing, whatever was happening in reality, I would kind of layer on like a soundtrack or a score or like imagine that it was being filmed or something yeah. like that. Yeah, as, as a way of kind of shaping it into something manageable. That's so interesting because that's you're viewing your life in third person. <laughs> you know, you're viewing I mean, your life not always, but I think those moments are like most they they have they stay with you because yeah. in the moment you have like you know put a sort of extra weight on them. Like mm. I can remember being 20 years old in the summer, I I was, I I was living in New York city and I was, uh, between, I think it was like between my, my sophomore and junior year of college or something. And I was subletting this apartment on the upper West side. And there was a a roof. You could go up on the roof. Uh, it's like a, you know, fifth floor brownstone. And like, you could go, you could go sit up on the roof. And I just remember like, sitting up there drinking coffee one morning and it was really hot and summer like sweltery. It was beginning to get that sticky kind of feeling, but it was still early morning and just looking around at the rooftops and the water tanks on the roofs and having my coffee and just feeling like, okay, wow, you're in a life now. You're, you're having a moment in a life. And this is a moment that could be like in an art film. Like mm. I could go down to the film forum right now and possibly watch a movie in which a young 20 year old woman was sitting on a rooftop looking out at this very scene, having her coffee. That is so interesting. I don't, <laughs> but I, but wow. I don't remember what I did after that. Like I don't yeah. remember going down and like, yeah, taking a yeah, shower yeah. but in that moment you were paying attention. <laughs> yes. But you know, I just don't have those moments anymore. And I've talked about this a lot and I think that it's, large because of technology and digital media because Mm. there were so many times in life where you did not have your you were not sitting in the park looking at your phone you were sitting in the park staring into space yeah there was so much staring into space going on before phones 
that like yeah. lord knows what your mind was capable mind of. was wandering yeah, yeah. I, I i don't i don't I, I it hasn't changed for me it's my memories have always been pretty bad like the, in the sense that they're just flat they're they're as you said flashes but they're so so unclear what i often think about when i think of myself as younger i just think of photos of me that I look at because they're, you know, hanging in my parents' room. Right. So I've seen, so that's how I know what I looked like for sure. But if oh, yeah. I didn't have that picture, I don't know if I would have remembered what I looked like when I was younger. Well, it's hard to remember too. Like if, if there's a photograph of you as a child, it's at a birth at your birthday party, say it's hard to know if you actually remember that birthday party or if you've just seen the photo so many times. For me, I know it's a photo. Yeah. It's, yeah. The, it's definitely the photos that I now can remember because I've, I, I see them again and again and again, or look at them again and again and again. But if it wasn't for the photos, I don't think I would have a lot of those memories. And it, well, it's interesting because what I have is feelings. Like I have an experience and I have the memory of the experience. I, you know, I have, I look back on my life and I think, you know, I have like very, very pow powerfully positive and warm feelings towards my father. I know that he took good care of us. I know that he was warm and loving and, you know, gentle and all of these things. But I can't remember a specific instance where he was doing a thing that I would later remember as gentle or, or kind or loving or whatever. I don't, I don't have that. The specifics are gone, mm -hmm. you know, but, but the lesson I learned from all those memories is there. And it, I feel it very powerfully. So with my, with my siblings who are better visualizers than me, I find that they have, when we talk about our childhoods, we have more or less the same, you know, more or less the same conclusion you know, that this person sucked mm -hmm. or this person, did, or this person had problems here and we wish we would have had more of this or that or whatever. We, we come to the same kind of conclusions, but they have this detail that I, 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 sometimes I think they're pulling my leg, you know, they'll be like, you don't remember that. That didn't happen. What are you talking oh, about? Like you. that just didn't happen. <laughs> um, so that, I, I think the whole thing is pretty, pretty interesting. And I wonder, I, I wonder how that's connected to our self, sense of selves. I mean, that's what I'm, like where my writing is going to probably take me now, because I think that so much of my personality that manifests at, as kind of autism might just be that I have a different sense of different connection to myself, you know, like as right. a self, because I don't have powerful memories. I don't tell a story in my head about my life. I don't, you know, I, none of that happens. So if none of that happens, there's, who who are you anyway, right? You you, Megan, tell a story about your life as Megan, you know. Use. So if you were okay, let me ask you this. So like if you say you were single and you were going on a date, say you were on the apps and you were had to go on a first date with somebody and you have to sit down and do the spiel like this is the story of my life kind of thing, would you be able to narrow that down to like a 10 minute? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I Shtick. I could. I just don't know if I'd be inclined to. Well, I no. I mean, nobody really wants yeah. to do it. But like, you have to. I mean, like people sit, like they sit down and they say, "Okay." I mean, it's not even necessarily the dating scenario. I often resist it. Like, I what's resist your story? Like, yeah. if somebody says to you, "Okay, what's yeah. your story?" Yeah, yeah. Well, I think I would say I'm an immigrant. I would, I I would try and connect it to the things that I feel are most strongly correlated with an intellectual position. You know. Um, right. But if it, 
if I didn't want them to think something of it, <laughs> I might not even bring it up. Because I feel like a lot of people look at, oh, this thing happened to you at this time. And this is why you're blah. You know, this is the therapy thing of, but that's not how I experience anything. I don't have like strong memories of some like the bad thing that happened to me. I don't, you know, I don't experience it over and over again. I don't think about it after the fact. So I don't want to mention it because then that person is going to be like, oh, this is why she does this or that. Because when she was 12, you know, her mom called her fat and now she's whatever you know what I mean like people have that tendency of doing that of telling stories about you right. to, to themselves right to understand you and I feel like it's not the way to understand me because it's not even how I experience me so so yeah that's interesting so you would take more like an like an intellectual conceptual approach like this is what I think about mm-hmm. yeah, this, this is, is what I think about this is right. the kinds of things I like to do um I might even give them, you know, I might even say, this is my personality and this is what you're going to be This is my personality with. type. This is the yeah. result of my yeah. test. Yeah. But I don't want to tell, so much of it, If I feel like when I, when I say, I, I used to actively avoid saying that I was Pakistani for a long time, um, unless I had to, because my name is Sarah. I kind of look like I could, I could pass as Latin. I say I'm from Texas and people just assume. Oh, really? Um, yeah. Lots of people. That you're Latinx? Yeah, Latinx. <laughs> no, in Lat- fact, you're Pakistinks. Yes. Pakistinks. <laughs> that sounds like a slur. <laughs> Pakistinks. That sounds like a slur. <laughs> um, but I'm gonna, I often I'm gonna avoided go with it, it and I just allowed them to think I'm some vague ethnic thing because I feel like the second somebody knows, they then they have this whole set of like they have this like conceptual cloud of this is what Pakistani people are and then this is what they think and then this is what they experience and then it maps onto you you know and now you're that thing and now you have to explain to them that in fact you can eat this you know BLT (laughs) and I don't want to have to do that I don't want to have to go through any of that I don't want to talk about it um because it's not relevant to my life yeah that makes sense no that makes sense so there's a see I have a I have white privilege in that case because everybody knows I'm going to eat a BLT or a ham sandwich. It's my favorite. Uh, no, that is okay. So that's something they can't. Just, they I should assume ham. I won't eat ham you know, sandwich, uh, like ham and cheese. Like so uh, gross. You know what's the best? What ham salad? You never what? see it. No, it is so good. Maybe for good reason. <laughs> when I lived in Nebraska, I discovered the ham salad sandwich. Yeah, it's like ham with mayonnaise and like a little celery. It's like chicken salad, but ham. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Have not had it in years. Um, yeah. Oh, this is so interesting. Yeah. We were, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, a piece that was in the New Yorker this week, but we're kind of running out of time. We're so running out of time. Have we been, we've been at this for like an hour. We've been already. an hour. Right. So, I mean, I, maybe we'll talk about it next time, but I think it's worth like just dipping a toe into for a second. So there's, a, I think, an extremely compelling and well-written uh, personal essay in the June 9th edition of The New Yorker by Lucinda Rosenfeld. And it's called My Adventures in Deconstruction, A College Affair Turns into a Coming of Age Coming Apart. And it's about how in 1980, when she was uh, like a junior in college, she's 20 years old, she began a, a, an affair with her professor who was about 15 years older than she was. And she does this very clever thing where, you know, she talks about how her just 
her total unraveling with this relationship. I mean, she was obsessed with him and obviously he's, you know, many times more interesting and compelling than like the regular boy students at the university. Um, and he's married and he treats her like in this very, very mercurial way. Anyway, but she maps it on to the sort of deconstructionist uh, trends in literature that were going on at the time and literary theory and reading Judith Butler, which was all the rage at that time. And the idea that, that femininity is performed and suddenly these ideas about women being not just the objects of desire, but Desiring, you know, people who desire. And she talks about Laura Mulvey, who is a film theorist who talked about this stuff. Anyway, uh, we don't have to get into the, the nitty gritty of, of the piece right now, but I do, one thing I loved about it was the way she told the story of herself in this really reflective way. And she talks about what it was like to be, you know, 20 years old and how she first enrolled in the class of the professor and how she had just come off from a like a really disastrous time in Spain for a junior semester abroad. And she set the stage for the conditions that would cause her to get into this kind of relationship by telling a story. And it's interesting because we talked about it before we started recording. You said that you had a hard time with the, the opening where she was telling the story of her life. I couldn't get past it. I was, I wanted to quit. If it hadn't been something that I knew that you wanted to talk about, um, I would have quit after the first couple of paragraphs because I just don't, I don't know. I, uh, maybe it's the difficulty in visualization. So I have a hard time visualizing the world that she's talking about. Maybe it's that, that takes away from the pleasure of it, but I don't know this whole narrative diary thing. I have read one memoir in my life. And that was because I had to, to prep for an interview. <laughs> what was it? And I'm not going to say, because it was terrible. Um, and I'm going to trash it the second I start talking about it. But uh, it, it, it was, it was this memoir of an ex-Muslim um, person who, who wrote about it. And it was, it was just, it was terrible. But I, I did not enjoy the experience as well. Like I didn't want to, I didn't want to hear it in that format. I would have preferred like facts about her life a little bit more and just her thoughts, just, you know, like what, what does she think about things um, versus this like this path to getting there with this piece. It was like a third of the way before we get to the meat, we get to the Judith Butler. That's bit, what they say which is, about our podcast, Sarah. That's what our, that's what our I commenters know, complain okay. about. They we say we're going to talk about this one thing and it takes us 40 minutes to get to it. Yeah. Well, that's, that's not even so. That's true. It's true. Um, but it's also a problem with YouTube because we do we do set them up for disappointment. We do say that. Also, yeah, you have to get to the, by the way, people, I mean, we have to get to the juicy thing. We can't just get to the juicy thing right because away you're just because gonna, then you'll stop listening. You're just going to stop listening. Yeah, yeah come on. To, to but I, I think we bit. just need to piece, we need to uh, cut out pieces of YouTube videos. I've seen other people do this in podcasts. Like there's a full episode and then there's two, three little 20 minute chunks and those are just when you cover a topic. So maybe you can yeah. do that and people can yeah. stop complaining Ugh, a little so bit. So much but... work to do. But anyway, yeah, so you yeah. didn't, okay, you've only read one memoir, but the thing is, okay, so you would have preferred, like in the case of this essay, you would have theoretically preferred it if she had just said like, I had an affair with my professor when I was 20. This is why, this is what 
it felt like to me. And this is what I think about it now. Yes. Yes. I mean, it just so, it took so long to get there and she's talking about, you know, going abroad and some people she knows of what her parents and all this stuff. And I just, I'm just trying to get through it, trying to just be interested. And you don't think that in order to explain to the reader, help the reader understand why she would have gotten herself into the situation, it's not important to say like she comes from this kind of family or this was what was going on for her internally at this time in her life. Like all I don't think it necessary. needed to be illustrated in such a lengthy, like, I, I think people enjoy this. People enjoy the story. They enjoy the ride. They enjoy the descriptions of like the beach and blah, blah, blah. And, and all of that. They, they, that's part of it. I don't think that a lot of that is necessary. Some of it can be background information that's necessary, but I feel that, I, I don't want to be, I don't want to be on the ride. I don't want to, you know, I don't enjoy, I don't enjoy it. It's boring. Frankly, it's boring. Oh my God. Cause I, I mean, the thing is with reading this piece, I mean, I, my feeling was like, wow, I really have to like read. It's, of- it had just been a really long time since I had read something that was actually literary and i mean Mm -hmm. but i mean shame on me because i'm probably and it's in the new yorker it's exquisitely edited that was my feeling too like oh i'm actually reading something that has been edited very rigorously and thoughtfully like it's funny because you think there's too much information i i was noticing a real economy of language because i can imagine i mean this is very similar to the a kind of piece that i would write this is very much in the genre that i write in as well or have in the past and there is a tendency to sort of repeat yourself like, oh, I'm trying to articulate something that's a little bit complicated. So in mm-hmm. case you didn't get it the first time, I'm going to say it again. And then three paragraphs later, I'm going to say it again. And you don't have that because it's been edited mm-hmm. so well. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I just thought, well, this is such a nice departure from reading like sub stacks all the time. I mean, I'll me just read like, like a little bit here. I'm just going to, okay. So she's talking about how she just is coming totally undone having this affair with this professor. And he's like hot and cold to her and she's in love with him and she's 20 years old and she's like, you know, like a mess. Um, she says uh, that she, uh, she, she actually starts taking, oh, I'm just going to read a little bit. So Uh, And she's at Cornell. So she says, in the 1970s, Cornell became a locus of the literary and philosophical movement imported from Paris, known as post-structuralism. She says, Cornell, along with Gale and Johns Hopkins, positing reality as less than a fixed thing, as less a fixed thing than a product of the language that described or constructed it, sometimes translated. So she talked about Derrida, there's nothing outside the text. Uh, the teachings it encompassed were sometimes known simply as theory. I would take women's studies classes, I'm just paraphrasing. In one, I was introduced to the work of the famous, of the feminist deconstructionist Judith Butler from Judith's just published book, Gender Trouble. And of course, that's what set the stage for the gender movement, as you and I, as you know, this was very prescient. Uh, I absorbed the compelling idea that women were always playing a part. Butler wrote, and I dutifully underlined, as the effects of a subtle and politically enforced performity, gender is an act, as it were, that is open to splittings, self-parody, self-criticism, and those hyperbolic exhibitions of the, quote, natural, that in their very exaggeration reveal its fundamentally 
phantasmatic status. Okay, by the way, Judith Butler is one of the worst writers yeah. like ever published. Yeah. So it's it's kind of funny to see the juxtaposition of of uh, Butler's writing and Lucinda Rosenfeld's writing. Mm-hmm. Um, but but anyway, she she talks about uh, she 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 at one point is so upset over this professor that she goes to see one of her women's studies professor and tries to tell her that she's having this affair. So she says, if my involvement with X, the professor began as a lark, as a lark, an act of one upmanship, even a feminist statement, it soon became something else entirely, at least to me. After a long winter, uh, Ithaca's gray skies and cold rains finally gave way to a scintillating sun. I know you hate this. And my own mood followed suit. Uh, I so I went to let's see so sorry I waited for my she's going to tell her women's studies professor about this I waited for my favorite women's studies professor after class and attempted to tell her about my affair was I trying to impress her with my quote adult credentials so that she would want to be my friend that I hope to get x in trouble or was I seeking yet another quasi parental figure to guide and console me maybe it was all three but she cut me off mid sentence a stricken look on her face and announced, oh dear, I don't think you should be telling me this before apologetically sending me on my way. Afterwards, I was mortified and furious at my misjudgment. Today, it is easy to imagine the same professor feeling compelled not just to listen, but to report what she'd heard to the campus Title IX office, whereupon an investigation might be opened. Okay, and then she really talks about this gets into the meat of the piece. And this is why this is more than just a personal story. This is, there's a lot of thinking going on here. She talks about how all these years later, decades later, in the wake of Me Too, she was forced to think about this whole thing in a different way. She says, uh, she says, you know, the media in the Me Too movement was awash in tales of male predation. For many women I knew, there was a sense of vindication and of finally being heard, not for me. I found myself rattled by the new framing that I felt the culture superimposing on my long ago affair. In some ways, it had been easier to blame myself for having been judged unlovable than to believe that I had been exploited. Okay, so now I know I just read a lot there, but I'm curious if you think that that concept of looking back on something that happened to you through the lens of Me Too and saying, wait, I don't like this framing because I don't like what it says about myself. Is that something you can just like say without telling a whole story around it? And is it better to just say it? I think it's better to, I I, I mean, maybe it just comes down to personal preferences that this is how uh, I prefer to get this information. um, And maybe because I have trouble following along the, you know, like, the, I mean, there's all these beautiful scenes that she's painting and they're just, but they're words to me more than they are, you know, bit scenes playing out in my brain. So maybe there's that, but I think, um, you know, I, I like to get to the, just the meat of it. And I prefer that she would just say that. And I have, <laughs> I have said, I think a similar thing in, in the past. Um, yeah. You know, uh, we've talked about memory on this podcast and how we revisit it and change uh, our memories sometimes based off of the new cultural norms. And it's really interesting that this woman is feeling resentful of that. I think that's a really 
that's an interesting idea. That's an interesting thought. And yes. that's an interesting concept. I would have never reached it though. If I had to, if, if you hadn't prompted me to read, to read this, um, because the style <laughs> just doesn't speak to me, yeah. but I, I also understand why it speaks to people. So I'm not, I'm not, uh, trying to make it sound like it, it's not a great style. I think it is a great style and I think it works a lot for people. And one of the things that I was taught in fundraising, um, for nonprofits was just that story, story, story. Yeah. You have to have a story. It has to be a beautiful story. It has to be emotionally impactful. And that is how people understand information. And if you cannot tell a story, if you give them statistics, you give them a chart, you give them whatever, it's just not going to pierce. And so long as you care about the effect, you should care about story. And, you know, it's not romanticizing, it's not dramatizing it. It's the best vehicle for getting your message through to the vast swaths of the, of the population. So I, I understand that. And, you know, um, I see the use of story and I see how many people respond really well to it. And I think that there's a very, you know, the kind of person who can both tell a well-written story, well-crafted story, and also have within it um, lots of interesting you know, thoughts, um, like concepts and like even yeah. provocations. I think that's a very rare talent um, that, you know, very rare person that can do both. And clearly this woman can do both. I think you can do both. Um, yeah, but it just does, it just does it's not my cup of tea. My cup of tea is, is like an outline. And like, I like those sub stacks that I think you don't like where they're just like, here's this idea and let me break it down. I mean, I, <laughs> yeah. I like, I like them, but um I just think there's some, something has been lost, but it's much harder to write this kind of piece. I, I suspect this is a, I think this might be an excerpt from a forthcoming memoir. Um, yeah. I think what, what irritates me about this is that sometimes the beautiful story and the beautifully, beautifully crafted language can cover for the fact that there are no interesting ideas. And in fact, that happens a lot yeah. on places like the New Yorker. And I think that that's my, so that's part of my like, at all this, because it's like, you're going to use a lot of beautiful words and a lot of beautiful language to get nowhere and to say nothing interesting. I feel like that happens too often. It's funny. You, you, know? you said that happens in the New Yorker. I mean, I think the personal essays in the New Yorker pretty much do have to have something. I mean, look, when I teach personal essay, my, the number one lesson is that it's not just about yourself. You're using your experience as mm -hmm. a vehicle to talk about a, 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 things in the world, some kind of concept, something, because otherwise it's just like a story about your life, which, okay, maybe that's all right for some people, but like, I'm not interested in that. I want to yeah. use my, my life as, as really just like a lens. And then we're talking about bigger, mm -hmm. bigger concepts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Maybe but, um, I'm, uh, you know, the uh, narrowing down on the New Yorker, but I it's wonder, too harsh. Yeah, but, I mean, but the, you know, these highbrow kind of, I, I'll feel, I, I'll say that about, I could say that about New York times style section pieces. And yes. Lots, lots of, uh, yeah. And like a lot, I think a lot of the, like, you know, the, I mean, I know people love the modern love column and obviously it's very influential, but like, I feel like a lot of the, the essays in the modern love column in the New York times are just very much like, this is what happened to me. This is my story. This is how I met somebody. Yeah. Uh, end of story. And uh, I'm, I'm sure that the writers and editor would push back on that. But, but I, but yeah, I, so, but anyway, I guess the reason I wanted to bring up the Lucinda piece in, in conjunction with this inner monologue idea is that I think that uh, I, 
because that's the sort of writing that I have always done. And fundamentally, even though sadly I have not written that way, I don't write that way very much these days. I think that that kind of narration is my baseline um, kind of mm. mental mode. Mm. And I actually think it's so healthy. It is so much healthier to kind of go around through life with that kind of voiceover really in, in your mind than it is to just kind of like have your mind racing all the time. Because for me, it was always like, oh, I might be going through something that's really hmm. painful or difficult right now. But if I can frame it in a way that makes narrative sense and that has some kind of like aesthetic. Um, so you're talking about layer. more than just a monologue. You're talking about there's a monologue, which would just be a racing, like it's just thoughts are following other thoughts. Hmm. And then on top of that, you're you're talking about like a, a storyteller. It's a framing. A framing yeah. of that monologue. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I don't think of the monologue as like thoughts upon thoughts. I mean, I guess it depends on the kind of monologue it is. <laughs> it could be yeah. just a stream of consciousness. Yeah. Like what's the difference between a monologue, an inner monologue and your stream of consciousness? I don't know what, I mean, I don't experience thoughts in words. I mean, that was the point of what I was saying is that I just don't experience them in words. I experience them, but Mm-hmm. whatever it is like so you know when people say um people say this to me all the time or ask me ask me this all the time what language do you think in right i'm like huh you know i just that it just the idea doesn't make any sense to me because i don't think in a language um just the, the i thought when people said that they wanted to know what language would i you know argue with myself like if i was revisiting a conversation and i was trying to like think of a good response to you what language would i use mm-hmm. um so i would just go with this is the language i'm most fluent in or this is the language in my like context right now and you know the one that i'm going to encounter but it doesn't make sense to me to think of of my thoughts as in any language so that that was kind of where i was but i think there might be it might be a different kind of you know i I don't know. We're so, it's so new. I've been really obsessed with this whole thing uh, for the last couple of, well, a week and a half about now reading all kinds of books about how people experience like their own inner, inner minds, uh, how they would categorize their own thoughts. There's just a whole lot of variety, which is very, very interesting. And I wonder what that says about, you know, us as a people. So there's this, um, you remember this movie? Ugh, gosh, what was it called? Um, it was about this robot, um, Ex Machina. You remember this movie? No. You remember? Okay. No. So it was like it was like totally up my alley. It was like sci-fi. <laughs> it had a lot of like philosophy behind it. Amazing actors, uh, but it's this story about this like guy who work. He's working at a tech company, and a tech company is. Oh, the founder is this genius and he wins a trip to see the founder and to spend like a weekend or something with him, with the founder in his like little villa or whatever, the secluded cabin that he lives in this, um, you know, so without going into too much what the plot is about, um, the founder is working on AI, on producing an AI uh, and the AI comes in the form of this lovely, like beautiful, that, that, I forget this act, the name of this actress, Alicia Vikander. Okay. Vikander. Um. Yeah. Well, she's just like beautiful robot. And the, <laughs> beautiful the, robot. 
yeah, yeah she's just she's, she's beautiful and she's a robot yeah. and um the whole movie is about his interactions with her and the founder wants to know like he's kind of doing a turing test using this guy and this robot um playing all these mind games it's a very very interesting movie one of the things one of the scenes um that i read about after that they cut out from the movie is at some point the writers thought about having a scene where they saw the robot ava's internal mind like how she saw things and it would be like something crazy something totally unlike how we see things like wavelengths or whatever like something odd you know and they they decided to remove it because they or not include it or whatever because they thought that it would just add too much like then she would immediately become an alien in the eyes of us because we think that to see to perceive things in such a different alien way makes her not human at all not conscious the way we're con we are conscious and it would immediately like it would solve it, it would present an answer to the difficult questions posed in the movie about what is consciousness, you know, mm-hmm. you know, when is a, when is a person, a person kind of thing. So I thought that was really interesting. And I was thinking about it while I was thinking about all this like inner monologue business. So anyway, long, that was my, oh, long to check it out. Yeah. All right. You should watch it. It is like effed up. So it's the kind of movie I really, I really get, okay. like, enjoy. You should watch it. Right. It was great, great acting. Um, creepy. Okay. I'll put it on the list. Okay. Um, um, all right. Well, we've been going a while, so. Cool. Now time for um, the bonus. Time for the bonus. So everybody, uh, if you want to hear the bonus, you got to subscribe. Do we need to tell anybody uh, what's coming up? Any calls to action? Yeah. Yeah. You should so subscribe at a special place dot substack dot com. And you subscribe there, you'll get access to the bonus audio. Uh, and then soon, eventually video it's coming. Um uh, and yeah, and then you get access to the comment community, which is smarter than the YouTube comment community. So I recommend it. Smarter than uh, us, actually. Smarter than I us sometimes. This is really annoying. Smarter than us. Oh, yeah, and but... we have, um, if you're a founding member, we have some hangouts coming up. Yeah, some hangouts where you can log in and see our faces and yell at us to our face, and we'll yeah. have to take it. So, yeah. So, um, you but you got to pay be, up for that. You have to be a founding member. You have to pay up, and that's going to be. Uh, do we know when they're coming up? They 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 know when. Yeah, they they're are. they're coming up. There's two coming okay. up. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So there's um, so that's that. And please rate us on iTunes or wherever you're getting this podcast um, or wherever you're getting this video. Um, thumbs up, like, subscribe, whatever, all those things. Please do it. It's really helpful um uh yeah yeah it is yeah it is and if you have any complaints we're working on them okay definitely all right i'm working on myself i'm doing the work megan's working on them i'm ignoring them all right all right all right everyone see you next time bye hi it's megan from a special place in hell if you enjoy the show and want to support it there are a couple of ways you can do that the first is to join our Substack at a special place com. there you can get access to bonus content every week you can participate in listener comment threads and you can even join us for zoom hangouts where we get together and talk about the show and answer all of your questions you can also rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts including on our new youtube channel which is called a special place in hell 
Sarah and I are really excited about the future of the podcast, and we're so grateful to have you along with us. So thanks for listening, and we will see you in hell.